You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. We have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Be seated, please. And let us turn to God in prayer as we, look to, we prepare to look at His Word. Father, we ask that You would open our eyes to see wondrous things out of Your Word. Work by Your Spirit that we may be changed as we gaze at the, the law that gives liberty and as we look at the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. God's keeping power in an evil world. We've been looking at the letter of 1 John for the past weeks, and it's a letter that is especially helpful in terms of strengthening our assurance that we are in Christ and that we have eternal life. In fact, the first verse of our text is the theme verse of the epistle. John says that he writes these things to to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that they may know that they have eternal life. We've looked at the theme of assurance a number of times as we've studied through this great letter. Our focus of our text tonight is verses 18 to 21, the second half of the text that I read. And we're looking at three certitudes, we might say, all introduced by the same word, we know. We want to look at the keeping power of God. And we've looked at the fact that we all can grow in our assurance of faith in Christ. And most Christians struggle with assurance in some way or another, at some time or another in their Christian life and experience. We might ask, why is that? Why do Christians often have a difficult time with assurance? Sometimes it's because of hardships in their lives. Sometimes it's because of things about their personality or the way they were raised. Sometimes it's about an incorrect understanding of what the Bible actually teaches about assurance, that we can have assurance that we know Christ and that we are given eternal life. But probably one of the greatest hindrances to assurance is our own remaining sin, our own struggle with the way that we continue to fall short of God's glory in our lives. So there are many ways and reasons that we can need to grow in assurance. And tonight, I hope we are encouraged as we just take a glimpse 
at the keeping power of God. And I hope that we're built up as we think about this. The first point I want us to see is that Jesus Christ keeps us from the evil one's harm. Jesus keeps us from the evil one's harm. In verse 18, we see it described this way. This is the first we know of this concluding part of the text. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps himself safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. It's interesting that both Christians and Jesus Christ, their Lord, are described here using similar language but slightly different. It's, it's described anyone born of God, Christians, that is, who are born of the Spirit, born of God, are described in one phrase, but then Jesus Christ is described most likely, we're not absolutely sure, but most commentaries take this view that the one who was born of God keeps him safe, keeps the Christian safe, Jesus Christ, the ultimate one who was born of God. So, this verse is telling us that Jesus keeps us safe from Satan's attacks. He says, the evil one cannot harm him. And so, we are kept by Jesus' power from Satan who is out to destroy us. And of course, the harm being described here is not necessarily physical harm or material harm in this world, but it's describing spiritual, eternal harm. Jesus keeps us from Satan and his attempts to destroy us spiritually. So, for example, in the story of the book of Job, we know that Satan was allowed to test and to destroy Job physically in some ways, to take his material goods, to physically afflict him, but he wasn't able to spiritually and eternally harm Job. He wasn't also, in that case, allowed to take Job's life. And so, Jesus Christ keeps us from Satan's attacks. The word there, harm, might be translated in some of your translations as touch. It could be translated touch, but it's a stronger sense than that. It's, it's almost an echo of Psalm 105, verse 15, where the Greek translation of that uses the same word that we find here, and it says there, do not touch my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Notice how the parallel phrases, do not touch, do not do them any harm. Those go hand in hand. So, Jesus keeps us, so the devil doesn't touch us spiritually, so we do not continue in sin. That's the sense here. The one born of God does not continue to sin. Why is that? Because Jesus keeps us. Satan can't touch us. We don't persist in. We don't continue in sin. Not that we don't fall into sin, not that we don't sin, but there's a fundamental change in the Christian's relationship to sin. Before he was born of God, before he knew Christ, he sinned just like everyone else in the world without even stopping to think about it. And so, this is a fulfillment of that petition in the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. That's the sense that we have in this text. And this truth should be a great encouragement to us in our spiritual warfare against Satan and his attacks. We know that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians 6. No, it is a spiritual battle that we are fighting, and Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, 
But we're given this assurance here. Jesus Christ is at work in us. And so we can carry out God's commands. We can obey him. We can love him. We can trust him to resist Satan and his attacks by standing firm in the faith. And so one point of application we could just draw from this very first point is to ask ourselves this, how, in what way is the devil attacking us this week? And certainly there are many ways, and I'm not saying that you know necessarily what is the devil's attack, or what is just your own sinful flesh tempting you, or what is an attack of the world around you. We talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those three are hard to know for sure sometimes what the source of the attack is, but think about it. You are engaged in spiritual warfare this week. And maybe for the readers of John's letter, one of the ways that attack came was false teaching that was very much a part of their lives that they had to resist. Maybe that's true for your life. Maybe you've just gotten back from a year in college somewhere and you've had all kinds of ideas thrown at you that are contrary to God's Word. And you try to think, well, uh, how, how should I think about that? Or maybe the attack for you comes in the area of complacency about spiritual things. And Satan is trying to lull you to sleep spiritually. I think that's a very powerful technique that Satan uses in America where we have so much. We've just seen these slides about... Uh, poverty in Africa, and we think how much we have. There's such a powerful temptation to apathy and complacency and just to have all that we have and just not even consider spiritual things. Or maybe Satan's attacking you through some severe trial like he did with Job. But whatever the form of the attack that Satan is working on you this week, remember that Jesus Christ keeps you He is the one who keeps us safe. He doesn't let Satan touch us, and so you can take up the whole armor of God and be prepared for Satan's attacks. Secondly, our second point, Jesus Christ keeps us in the midst of an evil world. Verse 19, the second we know. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus Christ keeps us in the midst of of an evil world. What a description this is, second half of this verse. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, we don't usually think of the world quite like that. Of course, we know that this is God's world, and ultimately God rules in this world. But it's a very descriptive phrase. The world is in Satan's grip. It actually lies there. There's this sense the whole world lies in the the power of the evil one. It's like it's lying there resting, and the world is not struggling somehow to be free from Satan's hold. No, it's just quietly lying there, content there. That's the sense that you get from that phrase. The world lies in the devil's arms, but the devil is not allowed to lay a finger on the Christian. We we know that the Bible says a lot about Satan being the prince of the power of the air, and and in that sense, he is at work in this world. I like the way John Stott puts it, and he wrote these words years ago, probably close to 30 years ago. So he says this, nowadays, when the line of demarcation between church and world is confused, 
And by the way, if he said that in those days, how much more is that confused nowadays? It is important to learn again that all but those who have had a heavenly birth are under the authority and rule of the powers of this dark world and of their chief, the God and prince of this world. He's saying everyone, everything in this world is under the prince of this world except Verse 19, we know that we are children of God, except for those who are born of God, for those who are children of God. But children of God live in this evil world. We know that's the case. I just stopped to think about John, the Apostle John, as he wrote this, and the evil world of his time. And the world really hasn't changed much. Yes, Christianity has gone out into all the world, but still it's an evil world. Think of John as he wrote this. John the last surviving apostle. We heard a prayer at General Assembly two weeks ago, and the person praying was focusing on words taken from the Apostle John, and he was saying, think about the Apostle John, the only apostle who was still alive at this time. All the other apostles had been put to death for their faith in Christ. He said, think about John. As he prayed about He prayed, he focused on words that John wrote, and he said, think of this. These weren't just apostles to John. These were his close friends. They had all made the ultimate sacrifice for Christ and the gospel. And soon after this, probably depending on when this was written, John would be exiled on the island of Patmos. It was an evil world in which John lived. He knew he lived in an evil world. Now, we know that there are many good blessings from God in this world, and God is in control of this world and every detail in this world, yet no sin is to be ascribed to Him. But don't we also feel, feel very sharply, don't we, aren't we very much aware of it, if we have eyes to see it at all, that we live in the midst of an evil world that is always pressing upon us with its evil mindset, with its worldliness? Christians know that. Maybe we don't feel it very much when we're sitting here singing hymns and praying and hearing God's, world, hearing God's Word, but we're going to go out, get in our cars, go home, start the week, and before you know it, the world is pressing upon you. Think about the Internet, for example. There's an example of something that's such a great instrument for good. You think of missionaries who are able to communicate instantaneously now and get out prayer requests and things like that, and who can be in touch anywhere in the world, or seminaries like Covenant Seminary and other seminaries as well, who have all their classes online so that there are people all over the world taking classes, listening and hearing classes at Covenant Seminary. What, a, what an instrument for good, and yet the Internet is also, we know, an in- instrument of great evil in the world, and all kinds of wrong stuff is available on it, and it's used in all kinds of wrong ways. I think that's showing us the tension that's there in terms of the prince of this world ruling this world and the evil of this world, yet it is God's, wor- God's world, and God is at work. We live in an evil wor- world. That should not surprise us but it should remind us to be on our guard. And we must be encouraged by the fact that our Savior, Jesus Christ, we're told here, keeps us even in an evil world. It's not taking Him by surprise at all. It's not something that falls outside of His plan. 
He is such a great Savior. He doesn't take us out of this world, at least not immediately. We know eventually we'll go to be with Him. But He doesn't take us out of this world to make us like Himself. He sanctifies us. He conforms us to His image in the midst of an evil world. Praise be to God. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Our third point, it is the coming of Jesus in history that is the basis of the fact that He keeps us. Verse 20, it is the coming of God in history, coming of Jesus Christ in history that's the basis of His keeping power. Listen to this verse, we know, that's the third we know, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, we know the Son of God has come, and it's in that tense in the Greek that describes past action with continuous results. The Son of God has come decisively into history. He was born a man and lived and died and rose again. And that work of Jesus Christ has continuing results. And He has given us understanding. The same tense of the verb is talking about a once-for-all understanding that we have in the gospel. And that has a transforming effect on our lives. And what's that effect? So that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. That word true there has that sense of not simply true, but also real. It's the word that brings out the sense real. In other words, God, the ultimate reality as opposed to the idols of this, word, of this world that John will con- conclude with in the last verse. God is the ultimate reality. And the point here then is this, Jesus coming in history, His life, His death, His resurrection, that coming is how God has decisively worked to save us from beginning to end. This is so revolutionary. The fact that we are kept is not because of something that's strong or wonderful in and of ourselves. The the keeping power is because of what Jesus has done. He has come, and it's on the basis of Jesus Christ, His person, His work, His mighty salvation that He has brought about that Christians are kept from the evil one in this evil world. And we would add Jesus' present ministry to His people to continue applying His work to their lives. Jesus ever lives, we're told, to make intercession for us. He continually applies His wonderful work of salvation to us that He accomplished. And so, we are enabled to press on in faith and in trust in God. And so, what a reason for great assurance. What a cause for rejoicing, even with the reality of our battle with the devil and the evil world around us that continues day after day. Jesus Christ has come. Our victory is sure because He has already triumphed. Years ago, we saw a movie called Brewster's Millions. Some of you maybe saw that. I've seen it reruns parts of it over the years from time to time, but it's about this minor league baseball pitcher who inherits $30 million. But there's this little twist. The $30 million, you see, is just a test. 
and he's really inheriting $300 million. But to qualify for that $300 million, he has to spend the $30 million completely in something like 30 days, and he has to spend it so as to end up with no assets, no money, nothing of value at all. You financial guys, you know, could, you know, do gymnastics trying to think of ways to spend money and not get anything out of it, you know. Um, So the movie is about him spending this money, and there's one more catch. No one's allowed to know about this deal. So all of his friends, he can't tell anyone that he's spending the money because he's going to get $300 million, you see? So they all think he's crazy, and they're all trying to help him not to spend it and not to buy stupid things and all this stuff, but it's a movie that's it's kind of fun. But here's how I connect that movie with this point. You and I live in this world just like everyone else, just like those who don't know the Lord, but we are children of God. We are heirs of eternal life. Jesus Christ has paid it all, as the hymn says, and He calls us to trust in Him and to live for Him and to love Him and to obey Him. And in a sense, to spend the $30 million dollars to lay down our lives, to give to Compassion International, to give to the work of Christ, to lay down your life, however He calls you to do it. In a sense, to spend the $30 million knowing that we are secure in Him. In a sense, to crassly put it this way, to know we have the $300 million coming in the bank as the inheritance. Do you see what I mean? Jesus keeps us. So what do we have to fear in this life? What, do we, what are we going to love more than Jesus Christ? And He gives us Himself worth more than $300 million, isn't it? What a tremendous blessing this is. Well, this brings me to my last point. God's keeping power is not a cause for complacency, but a call to strenuous effort. The verse ends, the book ends with this simple command, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Interesting, isn't it, the way the Apostle John ends the book? But isn't it especially interesting in light of the verses that go right before it are about God's keeping power in this evil world? It's possible that John is referring specifically to the many pagan idols and idolatries at the city of Ephesus where it's thought that probably this letter is primarily intended for. And the city was filled with idolatries of all kinds, if you understand it at all. But this charge certainly applies to all God substitutes that we try to hold on to in our lives. In other words, what we're saying here is the assurance we have in Christ that He keeps us to the end shouldn't cause us to fall back and fall asleep and act like we don't have anything to do. It should cause us to labor, in the words of Paul, with all His power mightily working within us, to know that He calls us to keep ourselves from idolatries of all kinds, to be true to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. If we are born of God, if we are kept safe by Christ, if we are children of God, verse 19, if we've been given understanding in Christ, if we know Him who is true, if we are in Him who is true, and the Bible says that's true of every Christian, then we have the power in our new life, in our new identity in Jesus Christ to turn away from every idol. What a tremendous encouragement that should be. And I hope that we will all grow in assurance as we gaze upon Jesus Christ who keeps us firm till the end. Let's pray. Father, thank You 
that we have such a wonderful Savior. Thank you that our hope is not built on anything in and of ourselves, but it's centered fully on the one who came that we might have eternal life, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.